would use the preaching of the word to do that work for which you have given your word to do, that the proclamation of the word would soften uh, hard hearts, would awaken even dead hearts, and strengthen the hearts of your people who we know desperately need it and can go only to you to find strength and help in any time, in times of need. May we be rightly challenged, rightly uh, opened by the double-edged sword of the word of God, even rightly comforted by the sweetness of the gospel that it proclaims. And may Christ be glorified in all of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open your Bibles to uh, Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 19 and just keep your finger there. Um, We'll look at those in a little while. I wonder if you've ever seen one of the statues or artistic representations of Lady Justice. It's a common artistic depiction of what it means to be just. In the one hand, uh, she holds scales with which to weigh evidence. In the other, she has a sword with which to deliver justice, judgments. But perhaps her most distinctive feature is that she's often depicted blindfolded. This trait is summed up in the common phrase, justice is blind. Now, this might seem like a bad thing to you. Do you really want a kind of justice that doesn't know its way around, that might trip over a root or fall into a hole because it doesn't know where it's going? But what this is meant to communicate is that justice is meant to be impartial. It can weigh evidence on scales. It can deliver judgments without any view to preconceived notions or biases. When two parties enter a courtroom, they have equal rights under the law to give their evidence, to make their case without any view to prejudices or stereotypes. Now you might agree that confidence in blind justice seems to be increasingly eroding. In the United States right now, there's a battle raging politically over which party has the most Supreme Court nominees, and each is accusing the other of appointing too many biased judges who will not be impartial. In the academy, we hear a lot now about competing theories of justice, different ideas of what is just. Even this whole conversation right now around fake news is all about what it means to evaluate a matter justly without bias. Before we hear about an event, we usually ask ourselves, do I wanna hear about this event from CBC or The Sun? From the Globe and Mail or the National Post? From Fox News or from MSNBC? It's hard to think about certain figures or events without knowing that we are seeking the events as they will be shared by those who hold certain biases. These debates on different perspectives of what is just and what is biased have deeply affected the church. One person might say to you that the church is an institution rooted in old biases and injustices. Another person will tell you that the church is under attack from new biases and injustices coming from contemporary culture. Vodi Bauckham notes well that these accusations hit close to home because Christians do care deeply about justice. There are accusations that the world can make against us which don't uh, cause us to lose any sleep. That we are trying to change people's belief system. That we solve contemporary issues with a 2,000 year old book, guilty as charged. 
but we hate the accusation that we are unjust because we know that justice is dear to the heart of our Lord and his people. It's like accusing Mario Andretti of being a poor driver. What is the church to do? Do we adopt a side of this worldly debate telling us who to treat as guilty and who to treat as innocent? Is justice just a narrative? Let's pick our lens and judge people through the biases that we know we have. Now justice really does matter deeply to God, the only true just judge. And he is concerned that his people themselves judge according to his wisdom and his justice. We see often in the prophets that one of the chief evidences that Israel had forgotten God is that they were treating each other unjustly. In Isaiah 1, God says to his people, they've forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And soon after that, we can see the symptoms where he tells them to seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This tells us we cannot look for right justice from anyone who does not know and love the Lord and Jesus Christ. We know that his law is written on the hearts of everyone in the world so that by his grace they can at times recognize a failure in justice or judge a matter justly. But their thoughts are conflicted and enslavement to sin always leads to futile thinking. One generation might recognize an injustice that's been carried out against some people while beginning to treat another group unjustly. The world can make right judgments, but they cannot bring about lasting judgment, justice. Justice that is rooted in the heart of God's wisdom is founded on, begins with the, what we have learned over the last few weeks on the image of God. We know that God has given the gift of his image to every person. No one is more or less a recipient of that gift. Each of us represents God equally as an image bearer. Now in that fall, that image was defaced, but not erased. We see God's justice based upon his image in his covenant with Noah. Genesis 9 through verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. <laughs> Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sh sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. We've already considered a few weeks ago how in that passage we see that each person is equally protected as an image bearer. We can also say from this passage that each person has equal responsibility under this command. There is no division in how to judge different people. Whoever sheds the blood of man, no one who breaks God's law is more or less culpable. So then when God gives his law through Moses, he outlined in detail his commitment that each person, regardless of their situation, should be not only equally protected, but equally responsible for their actions under the law. And this is our first point this morning. God's law was to be applied without prejudice. Just as Israel was leaving Egypt with a mixed multitude, with many different people among them, God says there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. This is applied in many places. For example, Leviticus 24, which says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. In Leviticus 19, in verse 15, you can see how this deals specifically with court settings. 
God says you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Both in the application of the law and in judging under the law, no man, every man or woman is given the same rights as well as the same duties. These two pairings, sojourner, native, rich, poor, are contrasts where it was expected that one side would have a harder time advocating for their rights and thus be in more danger of being discriminated against in the carrying out of justice. The poor had a harder time representing themselves than the rich. The native was often treated more favorably than the stranger or sojourner. God is clear that the carrying out of justice was meant to be free of prejudicial favor. But... He was also clear that the solution to prejudicial judgments is not simply to turn prejudice in the opposite direction. In France before the revolution, positions in the courts were awarded to members of the nobility, so justice was openly skewed in favor of the only people who were able to hold court positions. When the revolution came in full force, it essentially became a crime to be a member of the nobility. A perversion of justice was thus solved by an opposite perversion of justice. In Israel, there was no room for this in the administration of the law. A judge could not defer to the great. Aaron himself could not enter the dock and say, well, I'm the high priest, so I suppose this matter has been settled. But likewise, a judge could not be partial to the poor as a way to try and balance out any possible unfairness. He couldn't assume he was thinking inequitably and thus knowingly prejudice his judgments in the poor's favor. This is not to say that God was not concerned for the situation of the poor or the likelihood that they could be unjustly taken advantage of. The prophets often called God's people to remember the cause of the poor, the widow, the fatherless. But this was not a call to give them prejudicial favor. Pleading their cause meant recognizing that they were very often the victims of prejudice and oppression and making sure that they were able to make their case and receive impartial judgment. The psalmist writes, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. So God's desire was always that no prejudice or partiality would enter into the judgments of his people. What was true for the rich and the poor, the sojourner and the native, is true for any distinction. Governor and governed, owner and renter, employer and worker, each should be judged by the same standard under the same law. As equal image bearers before God, they hold the same rights, the same responsibilities. The answer to prejudice is never a differently directed prejudice. It is the answer is that each person would be individually judged on the basis of their verified words and actions. And that is our second point this morning. An unprejudiced judgment depended on verifying the actions of the accused. In order to say a judgment was made without prejudice, the judgment needed to rest on verifiable testimony that the accused did in fact commit the action for which they were being accused. To this end, the Mosaic law included commands regarding true and trustworthy testimony. We see that first in the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This command is expounded in Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 19, which says, 
A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. Even if a crime has been committed, a single witness will not suffice for a just accusation. Multiple witnesses are necessary because more important to God than a criminal being duly punished is that justice be maintained. God knows that he himself will execute perfect justice over every person. So for his people's part, the protection of justice itself, guarding against prejudice, is of greater importance. Having multiple witnesses gives the greatest assurance that a person is judged only for what they can be proven to have done. Worse than an insufficient witness is a false witness, which is here called a malicious witness. God so detested a false witness that they were to suffer the very fate they tried to bring upon the accused. To lie as a witness is seen as a prejudicial miscarriage of justice. Look again at Leviticus 19.15, but now we will read verse 16 as well. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Do you see how the command not to slander is rooted in God's demand to judge without partiality? Slander is accusing someone without just cause. It might be based on prejudice towards a whole group or prejudice against a single person. In each case, we are speaking judgments against them without any verification of their actual words and actions. And you can see that this is not limited to the courtroom setting. The law warns about going about slandering among the people. Slander is wicked if it is giving unfounded testimony in court, and it is wicked if it is gossiping with your neighbors. It is rooted in taking pleasure in speaking proudly and pejoratively against other image bearers. And Proverbs regularly links slander with pride, with an unbridled tongue, and with hating others. Gossip, slander, and quick judgment based on preconceived notions of a person or an event is always a prejudicial miscarriage of justice. God's people are never invited, whether officially in the courtroom or when speculating in conversation to make a judgment about any person without clear verification of their own words and actions. You never get to fill in the gaps of your story with assumptions and hearsay. You never get to treat insufficient evidence as verified, pretty much verified, because the subject was poor or rich or Roman or Cretan or even whether you get along with that person or not. It is better to leave a case unresolved than to speak beyond what is verified from a person's own actions. This is how God's people were to act because this is how God himself carried out justice. We saw that in Ezekiel 18, which George read for us. Once again, we have a prophet warning God's people who have forgotten God and thus treated each other unjustly. And we see here 
that God himself judges each image bearer according to their own actions. God says in Ezekiel that a saying had become common among God's people. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This proverb suggested that the effects of a parent's sin were to be found in the children. The sin influences the children. They're naturally going to share their parents' wickedness, even their guilt. But God sternly warns his people that in his his eyes, each one will be responsible only for what they alone have done. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, he is righteous and shall surely live, declares the Lord. But if a righteous man fathers a son who is violent and unjust, God says, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. To accuse a person based on their background, whether it is their nationality, their family heritage, even the acts of their parents is slander. When we first read the Noahic Covenant a few weeks ago, we considered how at different times and in different contexts, the world has devalued different groups of people to argue they have less right to life, that they are even perhaps less human. We can also see how at different times and in different contexts, the world has judged different groups to be more or less deserving to be treated as guilty or innocent. We prejudge someone based on their ethnicity, their gender, their place of birth. We know that racial slurs and slanderous words come with connotations that include expected behavior. It's not just about who a person is, it's what we think that they are likely to do, how they are likely to behave. Those people are savages. She was being hysterical. He is an oppressor acting out of his supremacy. All of these reflect biases based on generalizations that influence how we judge a person before their actions are verified and weighed. They reflect a pride in ourselves and our own wisdom and intelligence and a disdain for others that prepares us to see them as guilty before their actions have even been performed, much less verified. This amounts to false witness. A person cannot be judged cannot be held accountable, cannot apologize for anyone but themselves. That can only be a miscarriage of justice rooted in prejudice and partiality. But before God, each image bearer is treated individually, facing judgment only for themselves and their own actions. And unlike us, God is able to administer this justice perfectly. He himself, with no bias, witnesses everything we've said or done or thought. For as he tells Samuel, the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But here's where God's justice takes a surprising turn. While we have a heart inclined to slander, to prejudice, to judge without evidence, God, the only one who can perfectly justly judge and punish us exactly for the actions that we have committed, delights to offer mercy. We see this in Ezekiel 18. If a man has lived a righteous life and turns to wickedness, he will be judged a sinner. That's not very surprising to us. The man was a hypocrite. He's been wicked. He should be judged. But likewise, God says, if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. 
None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. If the wicked turns away, that is, repents, as uh, we see in Ezekiel later, repents of their wickedness, they will be spared. God will offer them mercy. But how is that possible? Is this not partiality, prejudice on the part of God? Refraining from judging those who have clearly sinned. Is God not withholding justice from anyone that this repentant sinner has sinned against? How can God honor his justice and yet spare the wicked? To say that God sees the heart is to know that none of us Not a single one of us, based upon God's perfect witness, is free from guilt before him. Our hearts testify against us, and each of us knows that from our own heart. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it would satisfy the claims of justice for God to punish each of us with death, even eternal punishment in hell for how we have sinned against him and even against each other. But it is God's delight to offer mercy. Mercy which doesn't diminish but even exalts his justice. God sent his only son to bear the just condemnation for every sinful action, word, or thought that we have committed. This is our third point. Jesus bears the punishment for the sins committed by all who trust in him. For 33 years, Jesus lived a perfect life. No honest witness could bring an accusation against Jesus. Many tried. He is the one man in history who deserved no punishment. And then he bore the punishment. Not just for one. He went to the cross for all those wicked sinners who repented and trusted in the salvation that God provided through him. God gave us to Christ. We are his people, his bride. We are united with him. And he satisfies the claims of justice for our sin on the cross, representing us there, bearing all the pain and suffering and wrath and hell that our sin deserved. He took that so that you, who have repented and trusted in him, will receive mercy, even eternal life with God. Just as surely as God raised Jesus from the dead. Praise God that the only perfect judge who sees and knows everything you've done is the one who is most delighted to offer grace, even to his own, so that his only son would die, so that you could be spared from punishment. Declared justified, and then received as his own. So now, If we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, we live in the newness of life that we have in him. All who trust in him receive the Holy Spirit who now conforms us unto the Savior to whom we have been united. This includes working in us a love of justice and right judgment. We even gain a new deeper reason to hate unjust, biased, prejudiced judgment. That all who are united to Christ have become a family. That person that we were inclined to judge with prejudice because they were different from us is now our brother or sister. Now for us to unjustly judge and slander that person is to try and create division between those who have been united in Christ. 
through whom God tore down every wall of hostility between us. And in regard to those who are not our brothers and sisters in Christ, what do we most want for them? That they would become our brothers and sisters. We proclaim the gospel eagerly. We want them to be a part of our family, to be reconciled to God and to us. So in the church, our commitment to just judgment, which we saw in the Mosaic law, is not diminished. It is emphasized. In the New Testament, we see repeatedly the law's teaching on partiality and establishing credible witness carried over into the life of the church. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to correct a brother or sister who sins, he says, after you've sought repentance alone, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul says in 1 Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Paul says, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. James likewise warns against slander in the church. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, are you, not, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There was only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James also charges his readers for showing partiality in their worship services, putting the rich in places of honor while the poor are told to sit at their feet. Bentleys and BMWs in the front row, please. James says to them, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. He then says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So we see that again and again and again from Jesus, from Paul, from James, all through the New Testament, this same picture of justice that was laid down in the Old Testament. All formal accusations, any accusation, must be verifiable by witnesses. Just as in the law, Paul says, to do anything less is to judge your neighbor with prejudice. James warns against any slander in the church to be quick to accuse, ready to speak evil of each other is to put ourselves in a position of judge even standing against God and his law. So even our gossip and our careless negative talk about others makes us guilty of prejudicial judging. To slander a brother or sister in Christ without sufficient evidence, to even speak flippantly about them is dangerous. It pits you against God and his law. Too often, careless speech and slanderous gossip are treated as a small matter in the church. James warns that being guilty of breaking the law in any regard makes us a lawbreaker. The person who slanders, who speaks ill of others, who judges without evidence, joins the murderer and the adulterer as a lawbreaker. James is trying to wake his people up to the seriousness of this sin. James warns his readers, the tongue may be small, but small sparks set off large fires. We need to see prejudice, partiality, and speaking ill of each other as serious sin. 
It is making distinctions among God's people. It is trying to break apart the body of Christ that was united by his death and resurrection. We are proudly acting as though we are somehow less guilty than those we look down on, making us free to judge and revile them and feel comfortable accusing them without sufficient evidence. And so we must be warned. We must carefully consider the ways we ourselves personally are prone to partiality, prejudice, and slander. The sin of partiality never goes out of fashion in this world, but from context to context, it might change directions. It might even change its rubric. It might be based on categories that the world has created, like race or caste or class, or be a wrong application of real differences like generation or gender. We might be rushing to judge many people or just one, but the sinful root is always the same. It is always treating God's image bearers with partiality. Based on this way that prejudice can change directions like the wind, it can be hard for each of us to know how we ourselves are most vulnerable to this sin while we might feel guarded from it in a different direction. So in the church, we must be all the more watchful of new prejudices in the world which can affect us. We must be watchful both of whole groups of people who we prejudge as more likely to be guilty, as well as individuals who we are too quick to judge or accuse before evidence of their actions is brought forward. Our cultural setting is one in which social and political divide is common. Tribalism is expected, and there is easy access to tools with which to slander our opponents. With each new public figure and event, the world rushes to judgment. Social media not only gives you an outlet, but creates an expectation that we share everything that is on our minds, that we share it quickly, that we share it often, and that we share it passionately. You might remember the death of John Allen Chow, a young man who went on his own as a missionary to the island of Sentinel near India and was very quickly killed. For a short time, this event dominated the public discourse. Listen to what Tim Challies wrote in an article on the subject. First, he said, we don't need to rush to judgment. One of the consequences of this digital world is that it demands immediate responses. News spreads quickly and we are expected to have strong opinions long before we have access to more than the barest facts. Sometimes it seems that the less we know, the stronger we feel and the bolder we speak. With a situation like this, we can reserve judgment until the facts become clear. In fact, we should reserve judgment until the facts become clear. Hours after the news of Chow's death broke, we were all expected to have and express strong convictions about a man, an island, and a situation none of us had ever heard of. That's ridiculous and unrealistic. Don't rush to judgment, end quote. Social media thrives on the illusion that it's just an extension of your living room, a place where you can speak freely without consequence. It's a place for just thinking out loud, for working things out, I've heard multiple cases where Christians have been angry that a church might hold them accountable for what was said and posted on social media. Like it was somehow different from speaking out loud. But Jesus says we will be held accountable, not just for every false word, but every careless word we speak. There is no room in conversation or online for quick judgments and accusations, for spitballing about the choices and actions of image bearers. 
But social media is not the only place where we need to be watchful of the dangers of unfounded accusations and slander. The internet has created an easy platform for anyone to share opinions and theories regardless of their knowledge or qualifications. In the church, this is given to a rise of a whole industry of so-called discernment ministries and Christian news sites claiming to combat falsehoods or open our eyes to the truth. There is a growing industry and a growing ear for conspiracy theories, public accusation, and slander within the Christian church. Usually it's in the name of exposing false teaching. And these self-appointed discernment teachers and leaders produce content like tabloids, daily searching for new dirt that they can find among the people of God to keep us coming back for new content. They might claim to be opening your eyes to a new heresy or revealing the secret motives of popular teachers. These people usually target new and young believers. They target zealous believers. They target people who are eager to grow in their faith, who are looking for any content that they can find, who just search online for teaching, and these guys will come up first. Many of us have been drawn into this cycle, this spiral of YouTube video after video or article after article, feeding us gossip and speculation and slander like junk food. These mills of slander and accusation have a toxic, sinful effect on our hearts, our families, and our churches. I know many of you have come to the elders and you have found yourself fearful, suspicious, angry, even suspicious of your church family because some person online with no verified qualifications is profiting off of our rage and our fear and even profiting off of our sin, the desire in our own hearts to gossip and slander. I have felt this pull just like you have. That is why I see it as serious. To go back each day, that itch in us, to go quickly to find out if there are new juicy accusations, new things that our opponents have said that we can talk about, new dirt on false teachers. If you are becoming addicted to this kind of slanderous discernment and speculation, repent and throw out the trash. Give it no more of your time. There are more than enough verified, trustworthy sources of teaching. If you just ask, we will give you more content than you can consume in years. Content that is designed to build you up in the truth from verified teachers who are responsible for church families who know they will bear a burden before God for the people who are led by their teaching. Who have no desire to feed our hearts need to slander or speculate or show partiality. God has entrusted discernment to the heads of families and churches. People who know they will answer to God for each other. Do not outsource it to those who are not responsible before God for you, who feel no burden to prove their qualifications, who earn your trust by being more suspicious and combative than the next person. Take out the trash. Lastly, we must all be vigilant and watchful for slanderous gossip in our own conversations. Few of us think of ourselves as gossips. This is a sin that can easily take hold even in churches that love sound doctrine because those who we see as beneath us in intelligence and wisdom become, can become easy targets of our gossip as well. Every single one of us, no matter what our topic of conversation, has a really well thought out reason why our slander and gossip, our accusatory conversation, that's not sin, it's not sin in this context. For many of us, 
and I include myself here. The easiest way to have a Christian conversation can be to get around the water cooler and speak pejoratively and slanderously about those that we disagree with. It may be somebody in our church that we're claiming to try and help. It may be a popular teacher or figure that we want to mock. This is a lot easier than getting together and chatting it up about Second Thessalonians or the hypostatic union. Sanctified conversation takes work. It takes a lot of work. We are so easily pulled to sarcastic, judgmental conversation by the thrill of a culture war, exposing false teachers, even just looking down pridefully on those that we see as less wise, less intelligent than us, as though we somehow earned anything that we have from God. These motives turn us into gossips and slanderers. Friends, this is no way to talk about image bearers. It's no way even to talk about unbelievers. Every image bearer is a representative of God. Our behavior towards one another is thus an action directed at God. Just like our treatment of an ambassador is an action towards the king that he is representing. Unless an ambassador has verifiably rebelled against the king, then to insult, slander, and accuse him, to gossip about him is to do so to the king himself. James points out the hypocrisy of using our tongues to bless our Lord and Father and then curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From discriminating against millions of people to gossiping about one, the sin of cursing God's image bearers is the same at the root. Unless our accusations are carefully formed judgments against the way a person has verifiably rebelled against God, then our accusations are also towards the one in whose image they are made, and that makes our blessings towards God, our worship, our praise, hypocrisy. So for the fear and the love of God and the love of each other, let us never direct an unfounded or unjust or prejudicial word at an image bearer. Even false teachers and false teaching, enemies of God, even when talking about them, let us make sure that we are not doing so to feed a proud desire in our hearts to speak slanderously. It was never for pleasure that the authors of scripture spoke about false teaching, even when they spoke about it regularly. Let our desire be to speak seriously, soberly, carefully, for the sake of building up the church. So in all places, regarding every event, topic, people, or person, let us desire that our speech be sanctified and humble. If we must make accusations, let us make sure they are necessary and they are verified. May we never delight in leveling accusations and slandering. Ephesians 4 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let us speak of each other with purpose, to glorify God and build up his church. In this way, we will be guarded from slander, false accusations, and thoughtless pride and prejudice. This is what we must do for the love of God and his justice and for the love of his mercy. Zechariah pairs these two commands. Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Even when we must render true judgment against verified sin, 
What do we want most? To see repentance and faith worked in those whose sin has been exposed. Our delight is not in making accusations or rushing to judgment. Our greatest delight would be that sinners would receive mercy. Mercy that we have also received. Because all of us know that we are no better or wiser or more righteous than any person we might be tempted to slander or show prejudice against. We ourselves deserve nothing less than death and hell. We are justified before God by his mercy, by grace alone, through Christ alone. So even as we must justly point out sin, we do so with humility and care. Because we ourselves who love God's justice, we owe everything to his mercy. In conclusion, Ephesians 4 says again, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we know that this is a nefarious sin, but it is a ubiquitous sin and a hard sin to spot and so easy to take hold of our hearts. Just as we think that we have dealt with all prejudice and slander, we see it turn in another direction. And the temptation of the devil, the world, and the flesh always preys upon us to turn us into proud creatures who forget that anything we have, we have by mercy, so that we would judge and look down on others. Father, may we see clearly and run from this sin. May we, by your Spirit, put in the hard work of sanctification in our speech. May Christ be glorified by a people who hate prejudice, who hate to judge anyone before they are known, before their actions are verified. May we delight in a family of God made of brothers and sisters who, apart from you, would have hated each other, May we delight in what the gospel has done in us, even us ourselves. And may that be reflected in every word, in every action towards each other, even towards the world, that Christ may be glorified and you may be glorified for accomplishing in us, which we know apart from you would be impossible. All praise and glory for the gospel of our salvation, the mercy of Jesus, for your dear love and even the powerful work in the spirit these gifts of grace which belong to us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.